Welcome to Lean Back. I'm Lisa. And I'm Laura. And today we're talking about courage. Laura, we decided to record this because we've been thinking a lot about what it means to feel secure and to feel like change is possible in, you know, authoritarian moments, which obviously this is one in the United States and in other places around the globe. So I thought I might ask you to talk a little bit about why you think courage is an important topic for us to take up and lean back. So I think courage is often used in a really, really narrow sense. I think of like the office motivational posters and that like definition of courage for someone's like jumping over two rocks or, you know, like, uh, doing something that's considered fearless. Like there's a mythos of courage that is reserved for like the war heroes or the athletes. Um, but I don't think we value the type of courage that is happening like with regular people. And I think it's important in this moment, like we're in the midst of the great resignation and we're in the midst of social and cultural shifts. And a lot of it is the result of courageous acts on like individual levels and in networks. So I'm seeing courage outside of that normal definition and thought it's helpful because in a lot of ways leaning back and our manifesto is a manifesto of courage, um, of rejecting what people are telling you to do. And I think that we're at a moment where that manifesto is playing out in a lot of different spaces. So it's encouraging and wanted to talk through that for sure. Yeah. I think that the most encouraging place is probably labor, right? So I think all of the unionization movements and the successful labor moments, I'm thinking of the Columbia student movement, right? The graduate students unionization this week, that kind of organizing, I think is really exciting. And it feels very foreign down here in the right to work states in the South, right? That, that, that kind of labor organizing and potential can be realized, but it is good to see that it's happening in other places, even New York. So I feel like the great resignation as it's being called is a weird, a weird way to think about it. I, I like that as a historical moniker, even though I think that it covers up how many people are permanently disabled from COVID or have died or have been displaced or have not had workplace protections where they felt like they could. I'm thinking about the families with small children or elder care. I'm thinking about nursing homes. I'm thinking about nurses and the nursing shortage. I'm thinking about the idea of essential workers who don't have protections. I'm thinking about rolling back COVID stimulus checks and cutting COVID sick leave. And I don't know, I'm thinking about the way that COVID is perhaps introducing white Americans to a kind of precarity that they have not felt 
despite the fact that the social safety nets that they wish existed haven't, and they haven't necessarily participated in that struggle. So I like starting with the great resignation because I think it gives us a launching point to think about courage and the courage to quit a path. Just the number of people that I know that are like, fuck this, I'm changing my life. This shit is stupid. I'm not doing this anymore is I think really exciting for people to eject out of habits and build different futures. So in some ways, COVID is for the people who survive it has the potential to create new futures while also obviously disabling the futures of a lot of people. You're right. You're totally right. There's two different features that are happening with the great resignation. Like people have left the workforce entirely and just aren't looking for jobs. But a lot of the people who remain in the workforce have been able to trade up to actually quit and trade up for something better. I think about how many of these people probably have wanted to leave their jobs for a long time. So it's like not a matter of courage, really. That's not what's driving this ability to quit, right? Like, so I saw something on Twitter the other day that was like, the things that we think of as courage are really just things that take a lot of money. And I don't think that's exactly right. I think things that we think of as taking courage just take like a normal amount of money. Like it's crazy that people haven't been able to like save up for six months to quit their jobs. Like that hasn't even been a reality. So it's not just that people have lacked the courage to quit before now. It's like there literally have not been means to do that. Mm -hmm. And as soon as you enable people with any kind of power, however modest it is, they're able to take advantage of that. So it, it makes me think about like what is actually required for courage. There is like a basic level of support that you, you have to have in order to take risks. Like you have to have some tolerance for risk and the culture act- actively works against you having any kind of cushion. You know, obviously we in the first two seasons talked about risk a lot because that's clearly my jam and thinking about, you know, the academy and academic labor and higher education and teaching. I think obviously risk is essential. I think the ability to manage difficulty and danger and uncertainty and confront hardship is an essential part of intellectual growth and political growth. But I think you're right that the material side of risk, I think that that will be an interesting thing, thing to think about in hindsight, in particular for the middle class and, and maybe the bumper upper middle class, what pausing student loan payments and the stimulus check together did to create cushions for people to buy houses, to change jobs, to stay home with their kids, whatever, um, to take care of people who are ill. I think that part of the conversation is sort of lost in the screaming between the left and the centrists. But I think it's actually going to be a huge part of the way that we understand this moment or can understand this moment as a bridge to a different future, whether it has COVID in it or not seems not to be the central thing is like, what does it look like to create a model even a temporal model for what the federal government can do to support every citizen? Like, 
we know that the federal government can just airdrop cash into your bank account. You can't unknow that. So how does that change your relationship to power or to politics or whatever? And I think too, against the intellectual backdrop of authoritarianism and sort of fascism and you know, watching the January 6th commission's work sort of unfold, I think that it's also clear that people are wanting to transform themselves into more intellectually curious, courageous people. You know, watching the George Floyd murder, BLM protests, white people with BLM signs, DEI stuff unfold over the last two years has also produced, I think, desire, particularly among many of the ruling elites and certainly white middle class and upper class intellectuals, a different kind of understanding of intellectual courage and what it means to actually challenge one's consciousness to face or or fairly address oppression and privilege. And I think that is non-negligible as well. There's a, a certain element to intellectual courage that I think has a lot to do with like your willingness to change and your willingness to listen to other people and your willingness to not be right. So I think like being willing to say I'm wrong about this, I think that's something that takes courage. I think being willing to say you have a better, you should lead (laughs) instead of me. I think that also takes courage. It's not always the person that said it first or who is there first that is the courageous person. It's about the support network. No, I agree with that. I think that intellectual courage is really important because especially in this like propaganda model of information, right? Sort of the Facebook, Fox News ecology. What does it mean to pursue the truth about things? I'm thinking about the attacks on critical race theory and the book banning and the school board shit. And thinking a lot about how to teach people to build a sensibility about a relentless quest for truth seeking, you know, and what does it mean to discard orthodoxy? What does it mean to notice what's not being said? What does it mean to argue against oneself? What does it mean to include others' point of view? What does it mean to ask for explanation? What does it mean to detach from feelings and, and think about consequences of actions? What is the appropriate role of skepticism? in a neoliberal society? I mean, like there are many questions. I do think we can't lose sight about how much support is needed actually to pursue courage. You're right in terms of financial support and social support and intellectual support. And, you know, it's like, who are the helpers that are supporting people to make courageous decisions and to support courageous changes? And what does that look like in this authoritarian moment? Yeah. I mean, we've always talked about leaning back as it's more, it's easier to lean back always if someone's there to catch you. Women's ability to lean back um, requires networks of support or um, encouragement. I think though, it comes back to some of our early conversations about authenticity, like the people who have the ability to be courageous, have material support. They have intellectual support that, you know, they have social support. Uh, But also they have come to a fundamental truth about themselves, which is their launching point. And I think part of the difficulty of the moment in encouraging people to to be courageous and to be curious and 
you know, assess risk well and participate in shedding of orthodoxy is that they do not have a, a sense of their own authenticity. They don't feel secure in themselves. And so they produce paranoia and reactionary politics all the time. So it's like blame and scapegoat, blame and scapegoat, blame and scapegoat all the time, which makes it very difficult to get to an ethics, certainly a shared ethics, but even just an individual ethics. And I think that's hard. And I think we've also talked a lot in the podcast about conflict and the importance of conflict. I'm thinking of Sarah Schulman's and her book, Conflict is Not Abuse, right? That conflict itself is not a horrible thing. Abuse is an entirely different thing. So what does it mean to manage conflict? And anytime a courageous thing is happening, it's happening against the backdrop of conflict, whether it's interpersonal conflict in the family or it's political conflict on a global scale, conflict is the backdrop upon which courage is projected. So, you know, I think a lot about what it means for the emergent futurities to produce conflict, where is conflict productive for the self? Where is it productive for the society? How does it forge solidarity? You know, how does confrontation emerge as a vector through which courage can emerge for people who have not had the opportunity, right? Have not been tested in this way because they've been stuck in the routines and ruts of neoliberal capital. Yeah. I mean, I think it goes two ways. Like I think women especially avoid confrontation, but also the the culture punishes confrontation, not just from women, but from all kinds of minority groups. I, I think conflict is really important as a, an assertion of identity um, and as a way to experiment and play with courage and play with like asserting your own power. So I think it's like a necessity because in a lot of ways, courage is working against the status quo and, and the incentive not to produce conflict is one of those or to like make a scene, don't cause a scene, like don't be crazy. There are a lot of ways that the culture gaslights people into like reducing conflict. I think, I mean, a lot of people are living in a tremendous amount of precarity. So there's a lot at risk for having any kind of conflict with anyone who might prevent you from accessing resources. Oh yeah. I think poverty is absolutely the structural thing for a lot of people, but for the comfortable folk, the comfort itself, I also think disincentivizes courage, right? Where people don't want to produce conflict. And so, especially among women, you know, the middle class produces pleasers, right? Who just want to say yes to everybody and don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. And so niceness, as we've talked about, becomes a substitute for ethics or kindness or empathy, certainly for action. For me, it's interesting because in the academic literature around confrontation, there's been a turn, especially in Black women's writing for the last two years in particular towards joy. And I think you and I, before we started recording, talked a little bit about the importance of joy as a corollary of confrontation. I see that as a positive space, though one that can obviously be subjected to co-optation, but I do think that all confrontational, courageous moments, certainly the ones that we lionize historically as successes, I'm thinking of Mississippi Freedom Summer, Cesar Chavez's organization, right, of the farm workers, or even Fred Hampton. I'm thinking about the role, uh, certainly in the work that I do, of joy in 
knitting people together so that they can produce courage, so they can have that kind of grounding that you talked about being so essential as a material precondition for, you know, secure movements. It's important to embrace that conflict because it's going to happen at any time that you seek out joy, right? Like there's always going to be someone who doesn't agree with you or who doesn't approve. And like, you have to seek your joy despite that. So, I mean, if you spend so much time trying to please other people or be perfect in the eyes of someone else, I mean, that significantly narrows your ability to express yourself and to, to find joy. So I know this is like the most cliche thing I could say, but like courage is living your truth. (laughs) It is. It's funny. I told somebody the other day, if you wouldn't invite them to your mama's house for dinner, don't listen to what they have to say. (laughs) Like, why would you internalize their perspective? If you wouldn't even like consult them over a recipe, I think women, white women in particular, um, succumb to pleasing as a way of managing the heaping load of shame and disapproval and violence that is like the everyday stew of existing in feminine space. I think it's worse for queer women and trans women for sure. But I think that some of it boils down to what does it mean to produce boundaries for the self, right? In this quickly changing world, like how much of oneself is being determined by external opinions and how much of one's intellectual time, how little there might be, is focused on the ethics of the self that's producing reasoned, understandable to the self action instead of just reactionary, paranoid. Like I I was stimulated, I did a thing. I was stimulated, I did a thing. I was stimulated, I did a thing. Instead of having an ethics of like, I do this because of this, or I in general respond to this this way. And I, you know, here's the ethical paradigm that I use to encounter these kinds of things. And, you know, we talked about boundaries very early on because for me, how can you have courage if you don't have boundaries? How can you do hard things? if you don't have boundaries around who you're giving your energy to or with, what does it mean to choose people to do courageous stuff with? You know, I think I've said in one of the early podcasts, like people who you do politics with aren't necessarily your friends. You don't have to like them. I don't know what that liking them doesn't have anything to do with politics. (laughs) You know, you don't have to like them in order to struggle with them against oppression and for a more just future. So I guess I'm most curious to see how folks' imagination is fundamentally changed by the pandemic, because for so many people, the suffering has remained the same. There's still no access to, you know, serious healthcare, right? Affordable healthcare, quality healthcare. There's still no access to serious education, quality education, right? There's still no access to the social services that people need to thrive. And that hasn't changed in the pandemic for a huge number of Americans, right? Like housing still sucks. And, you know, you can go down the litany of things that haven't changed in the last hundred years. Voting rights continue to be under attack. But for the people who are comfortable, who I think might be listening to the podcast, I'm just like, where, where are you producing courage? What are the hard things that you're doing? Not just surviving, which is hard enough in, in itself. And I don't mean to like minimize, you know, what it, what it means to be courageous and survive, you know, what is I think low key eugenics. I don't mean to minimize that, 
But I also mean to say, how is the moment expanding consciousness in a way that is courageous and hard and difficult and offers opportunities for risks to transform our communities into more creative, healthy places? I I think it is and has been hard for me and I think many people in my generation to show courage just because the tolerance for risk is really, really low because, I mean, because of all the things we've discussed heretofore, like (laughs) the lack of resources. So yeah. So it's like, I can't say, actually say anything in this situation at work because I might get fired and I have like no savings. (laughs) But I think like what this pandemic has made people realize is that was horseshit. (laughs) I don't know. I I see like online communities, um, like the anti-work Reddit has blown up this year. And it's a lot of people posting about, Hey, this thing happened to me at work. Is this okay? And then HR lawyers can come in and be like, no, totally. But that's illegal. So, I mean, there are a lot of ways in which people are realizing that they have more agency than they thought and that their tolerance for risk is greater. And that is not worth in certain cases, not saying anything. I mean, but that's the thing about a massive political crisis, right? Material crisis is that it exposes fissures in orthodoxy that can be exploited and transformed. I said in one of the other podcasts this season that I feel like the great resignation is a low key wildcat strike. And that it's worthwhile reading it as such, especially because it's creating so much whatever apparent terror in the CEO executive class. People aren't going to take that job. Like at my university, we have all of these spots that are going unfilled because the state pay is so low and the benefits suck. And I'm not even mad about it. Like, I'm like, don't, then that's fine. Let those positions go and fill and fucking fix it. Raise the goddamn salaries. That is the, that is what you do. I hope that the federal support and the stimulus in some ways continues to help push people into making different into coming to different conclusions about their labor in ways that continue to expand the horizon you know but that's also not the only terrain because long covid and like just this completely eugenicist position that everybody should get infected is going to produce so much fucking suffering and is going to just create long-term havoc in the healthcare industry, which of course it should not be an industry. And I also think that's an opportunity for agitation and confrontation, which is a hard thing to ask sick people to do, but also they have always been there, right? Disabled people have always been on the front lines of confrontational struggle. And it's going to be even more incumbent upon them to lead, you know, a transformational consciousness about health and welfare and bodily integrity and agency and, you know, universal healthcare and, you know, how ridiculous it is to tie healthcare to employment and all this other shit. And so, uh, especially for newly disabled people as a result of COVID, the idea that they somehow have a transformed political agency is perhaps not a frontline realization. And I also don't mean to like Pollyanna it or project it, but it's, there's no doubt that a disability consciousness is fucking essential right now. It's undeniably true. And so what does it mean to center that perspective in this great realignment of labor and health and education? You know, what does access really mean? What is access? 
full stop. What does it mean to have access to education or housing or employment or wages or healthcare? What is freedom really, if not access? So I do think that the next 10 years or more will be reshaped wildly by a conversation about ability and disability that so many Americans in particular have been completely unwilling and unable to access because of their privilege. And I think that that is like an essential component to the emergent futurity or resistance or confrontational strategies and even joy as people grapple with the pandemic and its long-term consequences. There's so much about this pandemic that, you know, makes people reevaluate their bodies. And obviously I fear that it turns into like fitness, self-care. Yeah. Yeah. And also like turns into ableist narratives of how you can beat COVID by like working, taking two walks a day. And, you know, so I feel like there's a sense in which people are right now ignoring the pandemic and being like, well, I'm healthy. And so like, if I get sick, no big deal, I'll be fine. And I I see that so much of that reaction now. I also just think it's a lack of humility. I find it completely unknowable how people can dissociate so completely to the suffering and trauma that they're like, I'm just going to do what I want to do. I find it an unknowable thing, even though I'm seeing it constantly. Consequences be damned. I'm tired of the pandemic, but it's a weird class invincibility, race invincibility, ableist invincibility. But fundamentally, it is such a lack of fucking humility. One completely mediocre decision could change the course of your life. Like open a newspaper or open the internet. It's the stories are astounding. And so the cavalierness with which people are dissociating from the pandemic in some ways, it's not like it's not unprecedented or anything. I'm not trying to say that it's a special moment of dissociation, but I'm saying that it works in opposition to courage and ethics and solidarity and care and joy. It works in opposition to those things. And so I think for me, that's the most disheartening thing as we're going through this Omicron surge, especially in Arkansas, is just how selfish. And I'm talking about the people who should know better. I'm not really talking about the people who I'm talking about the people who should know better. I'm talking about the white liberals and the wealthy liberals. I just can't fucking understand the lack of humility in the face of such massive suffering that is dispersed so widely and is so complete and punishing. It is a kind of security that I, maybe I just have never had where I'm like, oh yeah, I can just willy nilly do whatever the fuck I want. It'll be fine. I just can't understand it. And I think, I think it's a real obstacle. And in some ways it marks out the people who are unable to see the moment as a test of their own ethics. So in some ways I find it to be a, I guess, useful litmus test and who who really wants to do the work of producing valuable confrontation with orthodoxy and who just wants to like, you know, get the 
dopamine hit. I feel like it's intentional. I mean, I business leaders in the media, even I do think the current variant isn't being taken seriously in the same way because it would be bad economically. So people are uh, white liberal liberals are around other white liberals who are like not taking it seriously. Their bosses aren't taking it seriously intentionally. And the CDC is not taking it seriously <laughs> intentionally. And uh, like all of those things kind of like validate the decisions. Right. So we spent a lot of time in this episode talking about support, but it is also important to create conflict with people who are making bad decisions or I think it is courageous to say like, Hey, this is actually like uh, fucking terrible for public health. Please don't make these decisions. Part of the problem I think is that not a lot of people are, you know, expressing outrage that their offices are still open or that people are sitting in conference rooms without masks or that we're not having like vaccination requirements for people to come visit. Or, you know, I think a lot of the people in question are exposed to those kinds of things and are like numb to them. And so it's like, I'm going to do whatever I want because apparently that's what everyone else is doing. And apparently no one cares about my life. And so (laughs) do I care about my life? Do I care about other people's lives? Like, does anyone? So it is like a kind of, I don't know, way of grappling with the fact that a lot of decisions being made by people who we are supposed to trust are incomprehensible from a public health standpoint, for sure. And from an economic standpoint, too. In some ways, I guess I just want to say maybe, maybe lean back from the nihilism a little bit. You know, it would be okay to just step away from that. Maybe take a little bit of a break Um, because I do feel like the culture is on teetering on the edge of like confrontation with orthodoxy or total nihilism. And it's just sort of like this seesaw, you know, back and forth between the possible, you know, radical possibilities for collective action and care and joy and play and risk and transformation. And then the other side is just like, fuck it, spring break every day. Right. Yeah. Omicron party and get it over with. And, you know, just the resignation buying, buying the line that everybody's going to get it. And it's going to be mild. It's just like such leaning into that idea that, this variant that nobody knows really much about is going to be mild seems like the most criminal as a rhetoric as a rhetorical device mild covid i feel like is doing such fucking mass harm yeah that's the first thing i heard about the variant was that it was mild and it took me i had to go one month yeah i had to research because like the main dialogue i i think maybe out of just like trying to will this to not be as bad this time was that it was mild. But also as a eugenics thing, it's like, if you tell people it's mild and then millions of people get sick, tons of them die. You're just culling people, both culling people from the culture and then producing a bunch of disability and dependency. And as a political decision, especially from liberals, that's really discouraging, even while I'm also trying to provide a read that could potentially be transformative. The fact that it's going to take disabling millions of people is so fucked up and terrible 
that there's no, you can't be Pollyannish about it, even as you confront it as an inevitable consequence of this series of strategic and deliberate policy decisions by the federal and certainly the state governments, you know? So there is a sense that everybody feels like they're on their own and that's by design. And also don't lean into that. It's not fucking true. You are actually not on your own. You actually live in a community of other people who are, you know, dealing with the consequences of your own fucking personal actions. I just, it's just a willful fantasy. And I think it's just the most dangerous for the people who have the most material resources. You know, it is what it's always been, I suppose. You know, I do think it is important to assess and think about what is valuable to us. Joy, obviously, we talked about as, you know, something that can come about as a result of courage. But there are situations where chasing your own joy is harmful. So saying joy is a value that we want to pursue doesn't mean doing whatever you want in a pandemic is ethical. I, again, I think it's the rejection of that like individual impulse. Yes. We started with at the top of the show. Like that's not what courage is about. It's not about like, it's not some individual decision and individual overcoming this uh, difficulty. It's not it inspiration is. porn. Exactly. Mm. It is doing difficult things in the face of discomfort. But a lot of times that difficult thing is to, you know, wear a dumb looking mask everywhere that you go. It's weird. Cause I, you have this institutionalist impulse right now at this point in the pandemic where I'm like, you know, libraries are fucking good, right? Social services are good, support social welfare. And I just don't think that people understand that their agency is more empowering when they are building, right? Community, when they're building, inst- not all institutions are worth saving, certainly, and not all of them can be transformed. But at the end of the day, it's the institution that knits the community together. And without the institutions, you do have nihilism in a country that is this worshiping of capital. So there has to be a place for people to put their outlet. And, and I think especially in the pandemic to not just collapse back into, you know, heteronormative family as the only secure space for them. And I think that that's, one of the benefits, but also negatives of consequences of COVID is the retreat into the heterosexual nuclear family. But on the other hand, the folks who do not have connections and do not have the intimate connections of that kind of labor are really struggling because the institutions are so weak. So I think moving forward, even given the emergent complexities of COVID and authoritarianism in the country, People need to direct their energies such as they are and their resources into the kinds of courageous connections that build strong institutions that are grounded in, you know, liberatory ethics and to try and transform the ones that aren't or smash them. And I think that we're not going to have a lot of choice because in some ways this just feels like such a total part and parcel of climate change and of massive global inequalities that are going to be exacerbated by climate change to come. So without dealing with structural racism, those institutions are not going to transform. And without dealing with disability and access, those institutions are not going to transform. So, you know, I think people would find a lot more strength in the courage of producing solidarity if they understood that the institutions are what's going to save a lot of us. 